This episode, we talk about the identity politics surrounding the choice of Kamala Harris as Joe Biden's running mate. We also talk about the Canon Hinnant case and how important it is for the American people to hold the media responsible. My name is Jacqueline, and I'm just an American. Joe Biden has finally selected his running mate for the 2020 presidential election. For his vice presidential pick, he has chosen Kamala Harris of the state of California. This has dominated the news headlines over the last week, rightfully so. It's a, it's a big announcement. But one thing that I noticed in all of the mainstream media and social media posts about Kamala Harris being the pick was one specific aspect of her. And that is about how she is the first female person of color to be on the ticket in the vice presidential slot. Prior to the announcement that Biden was choosing Kamala Harris, Biden had stated that he was going to choose a woman to be his running mate. He said that he had a list of women that he was going through and he was thinking about in order to make a decision as to who he wanted as his running mate. It's interesting because this selection by Joe Biden that he was going to pick a woman was widely celebrated by the left in this country. And it's interesting because I'm old enough to remember the 2012 presidential election between Mitt Romney and Barack Obama, where Mitt Romney had mentioned that when he was governor, he had binders full of resumes of women that he was looking through in order to pick women to work for him. And he was presenting that as a way of talking about the fact that he did give women opportunities. At the time, that was declared sexist. That was just so disrespectful to women to say binders full of women. That was something that he was widely attacked for. But when Joe Biden declares that he's got a list of women that he's looking through, that is celebrated. This is identity politics in its purest form. And what we have seen is the fact that Joe Biden made his selection for who he wanted to run with based on immutable characteristics of a person. It was not based on her qualifications. It was not based on her character. It was not based on her readiness to be in a vice presidential role. It was based on the fact that she is a woman and that she is a person of color. If this is something that you hear and you say, no, that's not true, then I present that it's not me saying this. It is everybody else. It is the fact that in every single headline, in every single social media post, and in all of the captions of the social media posts, this was the number one thing that was mentioned about Kamala Harris. This leads to the question that I think we all need to ask ourselves, which is, should we choose people based on these characteristics? Should we choose people for jobs? Should we choose people for leadership roles? Should we choose people for president or vice president of the United States based on things that people cannot control? specifically their gender or their race. Now, the idea behind identity politics and those who promote it and those who look at this stuff and say that it is important is that people who look alike and who have similar characteristics necessarily have similar life experiences. So the idea behind it is, you know, for example, I am a woman, I am middle class, I live in the state of California. So ideally, if there was a woman who was middle class, who was living in the state of California, who was running for an elected office, that she would be very similar to me, that her values and her ideas and what she wants from the government and the direction that she wants the government or our nation to go into would be very similar and representative of mine because her life experiences were probably pretty similar to my life experiences. Therefore, 
someone who looks like me, someone who is similar to me in these immutable characteristics would govern with my interests in mind. This philosophy relies on one basic assumption. And that assumption is that all people who have the same immutable characteristics are the same. It, me, it relies on the assumption that all blacks are the same, all Hispanics are the same, all women are the same, all gay people are the same, that if you have this particular characteristic about yourself, that means that your values are the same, that your personal life experiences are the same, that the direction that you want the country to go in is the same, and that what you are looking for in an elected leader is the same. What's important to ask ourselves, though, when we are making this assertion is, do we say that about the people who are not in the quote unquote minority category? Do we say that about white people? Do we assume that all white people have the same life experience, that all white people have the same values, that all white people have the same interests and want the same things in the direction that the country is going in? In other words, do we necessarily assume that all white people are only going to vote for white candidates? No, we don't assume that. Do we assume that all men are going to vote for the same, the same candidate? That if there is a man and running against a woman, that all of the men are automatically going to vote for that particular candidate? If so, then I would point to all of the men who voted for Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump in the 2016 election. We do not assume that all white people vote the same. We, there is no assumption that all whites are Republican or that all whites are Democrat. There is no assumption that all men are Republican. There is no assumption. We don't do it with straight people either, people who are not members of the LGBT community. We do not assume that all straight people are going to vote Republican or are going to vote a particular way. If we have different standards and assumptions about one group of people compared to another, then that is racist and that is sexist. I think that this exemplifies an underlying problem in America today, which is that far too many people look to politicians to provide us with what politicians are not meant to provide us with. People look to politicians to provide them with meaning, to provide them with comfort, to provide them with a sense of identity, and it really leads to a feeling of idolatry over those who are in elected office. People in elected office are not meant to give us any of those things. People in elected office are meant to do one job, which is to govern. The idea of Aristotelian telos is that there is an inherent purpose or objective in a person or in a thing. And the ideas behind that, that kind of back that up, is that everything and every person in this world, every job, it, it has an intent purpose. It has an inherent purpose and objective. And when that thing or that person starts to stray from what its intended purpose is, problems arise. This is exactly what we are seeing when it comes to how Americans view our politicians. Politicians have one job, which is to govern according to the will of the people who elected them. That is it. They are not meant to be our moral leaders. They are not meant to give us a sense of identity. They are not meant to give us meaning in our lives. They are meant to govern. And that is it. In a democratic republic, which is what we have, what we do is we elect people to positions of government with the idea that they are going to pass laws that are going to be representative of the people that elected them. We do not live in a straight democracy, okay? In a straight democracy, the, the people would vote on every single issue. That is not what we do. We vote for people. And I mean, yes, we vote for some laws and some things, but the vast majority of laws are passed by the people that we choose to put into power. So because 
of that, character and qualifications of a candidate absolutely matter. Because the idea is, is that that politician or that representative is not going to take a poll of every single person in their constituency to see how they feel about a particular issue. We elect these people to office and then we the idea is is that they are going to use their judgment while in office to govern. And if we like what they do, then we keep electing them. If we don't like what they do, then we vote them out. That is how a democratic republic works. So yes, character matters and qualification matters. But what matters most of all should be the policy proposals of that candidate. What matters most of all should be what that candidate says they are going to do to lead our country. And as voters and as citizens, we are supposed to look at those candidates and say, okay, what are you planning on doing? What are you proposing on doing for our country? What laws do you want to see changed? What laws do you want to see passed? What direction do you want us to go in? And we are supposed to make that determination based on those factors. We are not supposed to make the determination of who our leaders are based on immutable characteristics, things about themselves that they cannot change. It would be ridiculous to say that I'm only going to vote for a person with brown eyes because I have brown eyes. It's irrelevant. And that is how it should be when it comes to all of these other things. Now, I'm not a person of color, so I know that there are going to be people who are going to say, you don't understand. You don't understand because you're not a person of color, and so you cannot speak to this issue. And, you know, there are people that they want to see themselves represented in that way. Okay, so fair enough. I'm not a person of color, but I am a woman. I am a woman, and this game is played with women just as much as it is with any other group. If these immutable characteristics were all that mattered, the person who is in current political office that would be most representative of me would be Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi is an Italian-American. She is from the state of California, and she calls herself a Catholic. And yet, Nancy Pelosi is one of the politicians in this country that I would say least represents me. She is somebody who, despite her supposed Catholic faith, is pro-abortion very strongly through all nine months of pregnancy with no restrictions whatsoever. She is somebody who is pro-government health care, which is something that I am not interested in. She is somebody who has called openly time and time again for very strong gun control measures that I personally am not for. She is somebody who is pro-open borders, and I'm somebody who thinks that as a country we have the right to decide who we allow to come into our country and who we don't. And quite frankly, I find so many things that come out of her mouth very, very off-putting. On the other hand, there is a candidate who I would vote for 100 times before voting for Nancy Pelosi, and that candidate is a man named Tim Scott. Tim Scott is male. He's not female. He's black. And he is from a state that is on the complete other side of the country from where I live. But Tim Scott is a conservative. And Tim Scott is a Christian who I think adequately expresses Christian values. I would vote for him a hundred times before voting for Nancy Pelosi. It is not about what the person looks like. It is not about their race or their gender. It is about the policies that they want to put forward. And it is about the direction that they want to take the country in. It is about the values that I hold as important to me. And I look at somebody who is a politician and what I'm looking for is someone who holds those same values and wants the country to go in the same direction that I do. And here's the funny thing about all of this. All of the people who are today talking about Kamala Harris's race or gender would do exactly the same thing. They would vote for a straight white male before voting for Kamala Harris if she was running as a Republican. If Kamala Harris was Donald Trump's running mate, they would not vote for her. They would vote for Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren before they voted for a Trump-Harris ticket. For so many different Americans, what it really does come down to is the policy. At the end of the day, that is what people are looking for. 
So why do we pretend that a person's race and sex matters? Why is it that this is such a large and heavy talking point when it's somebody on the left who fulfills those characteristics, but in reality, even people who are on the left just simply don't vote for somebody just for that reason? Now, it's one thing to mention it, okay? It's one thing to say, okay, let's talk about Kamala Harris. Let's talk about her accomplishments. Let's talk about her achievements, her qualifications, what she has done in her career. And oh, by the way, should they win the presidency, should they win the election, she would be the first female person of color to hold the VP slot. That's one thing. But it's another to demand that Joe Biden picks somebody of a certain race or sex in order to be his running mate. That is a totally different thing. It is another to make that the number one most important thing in selecting her and make it the number one most important thing about her. And no, it is not me making it the the number one most important thing. Again, it is everybody who has only talked about that nonstop over the last week. Over the last week, I mean, if I had to guess, I would say it was 80% was talking about that and 20% was talking about her supposed qualifications to hold that office. The truth is, is that focusing on a person's sex or a person's race is insulting. It's insulting to the candidate because the message is clear. She was chosen for her race and for her sex and not for her capabilities. It is insulting to assume that people in this country are all going to think the same way and to think a particular way based on immutable characteristics such as sex or race or even sexual orientation. We are all individuals, and as individuals, we have our own life experiences, our own values, and our own reasons for believing the things we believe and wanting the country to go in the direction that it's going to go in. The real reason, at the end of the day, why it matters and why the people who are talking about these issues, why they are talking about them, is because they are planning on using it as a shield against criticism of Kamala Harris. What they are actually doing is exploiting her sex and her race. And it doesn't matter if that criticism comes from a woman because they will just say that, you know, if I criticize her, it's just my internalized misogyny. And I know that they're going to say this because this is exactly what they said about Hillary Clinton. If I offered criticism on Hillary Clinton, if I said, you know, hey, I don't want to vote for her because all of the things that she's proposing policy-wise are things that I oppose and I don't believe in, they say, no, 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 that's not the real reason. The real reason is because you have internalized misogyny and you just don't feel comfortable seeing a woman in a position of power. If you criticize Kamala Harris and you say, hey, I don't like these particular policy positions that she's espousing or I don't like this or that about her character, they'll say, oh, it's just because you're racist. And I know that they will do this because they did this during all eight years of the Obama administration. You can look it up on Google. You can look it up on the internet. It's, it's there for everybody to see. There are plenty of instances of articles that were written, opinion pieces that were written, and people who went on major news networks who actually openly stated that the only reason that, there, that exists, the only reason why anybody would be critical of Barack Obama is because they are racist and they don't feel comfortable seeing a black man in a position of power. It doesn't matter that I may not want to vote for Kamala Harris because she voted against the Born Alive Act, which guaranteed medical assistance for babies born alive after a botched abortion. It doesn't matter that I may not want to vote for Kamala Harris because I she supports abortion on demand for any reason whatsoever, taxpayer-funded, through all nine months of pregnancy, and that is something that I don't believe in. It doesn't matter that I may not want to vote for Kamala Harris because she openly advocated for Medicare for all and wants to take away my private insurance plan, which is something that I actually like. It doesn't matter that I am critical of the fact that I think she flip-flops on issues based on what she thinks is going to get her ahead politically. 
And it doesn't matter that I question her character because she is choosing to run with a man that she openly called a racist and a segregationist and said that she believes he's guilty of sexual assault and harassment. It can't be for any of those reasons. No, the only reason that I might not want to vote for Kamala Harris is because of racism and sexism. I don't want a woman in charge who is going to hide behind her sex. I just don't. As a woman, I don't find that appealing whatsoever. Real feminists would not run to crying about sexism every single time a woman is criticized. If we really believe that women are equal to men, if we really believe that women are just as capable of men at running for political office, which is absolutely something that I believe, then we also have to accept that any person and every person who runs for political office in this country is criticized and vilified and attacked. That is just a part of it. And to say that when it happens to a woman, that is only done because of sexism, that is hiding behind her sex. And that is not something that I am interested in. Now, none of this is to say that actual sexism doesn't exist. And we can absolutely and should absolutely decry actual sexist criticism when we see it. Actual sexist criticism are things like what Sarah Palin had to deal with when she was running as vice president and she was constantly asked questions about whether or not she could handle the job while being a mom. She was constantly asked questions about if she would be able to fulfill the role of vice president if she also had children and particularly a special needs child. That is actual sexist criticism. And the way that we know that it's sexist criticism is because those same questions would not be asked to men. This goes back to what I said at the very beginning of this episode where I talked about how the way that we know if something is actually racist or sexist is to put the shoe on the other foot and to say, okay, if we switch this around, would this question be asked to a male candidate? And in this case, no, it would not. Okay, there is never a male candidate for office who is asked if, you know, can you handle the job of president or vice president or governor because, you know, you're a dad and you have young children. No, that's never asked. So no, that shouldn't be asked of a female candidate either. So we can absolutely and should absolutely decry that. And we and again, we the way we know something is racist is by asking, would that same thing be said about a white person? And if the answer is no, then it is racist. But if the answer is yes, then it is not racist and it is not sexist. If I say I don't like Kamala Harris because I don't want Medicare for all, because I don't want the government in control of my health care. That is the exact same criticism that I would levy against Joe Biden. And that is the exact same criticism that I would levy against Barack Obama. That criticism is absolutely warranted. We should and can stand up and criticize any candidate for office who espouses a policy position that we do not like. And this is not, I'm sorry, but this is not just something that is, you know, I'm just kind of pulling out of thin air. This is absolutely what we are going to see over the next couple of months until the election, which is any and all criticism of her, whether it is of her policies, whether it is of her character, is going to be considered racist or sexist. What actually is racist and sexist is to assume that all people in certain groups think alike and want the same things. Candidates for office should be judged by qualifications, policy proposals, and character. In other words, they should be judged only on the merits. And there's a little bit of irony in all of this entire situation. As I look around and I'm on, you know, social media and I'm reading through, you know, different opinion pieces by people on the right and the left about the selection of Kamala Harris, it seems like there are a lot of Democrats who are actually not very happy with this selection. 
Kamala Harris, after all, did not do particularly well in the presidential primary. She did run for the Democratic top, the top of the ticket, and she did not get very far. There are a lot of people that I'm just seeing, and this is not based on any polls or statistics. It's just based on, you know, kind of what I'm observing around me. It seems that there are a lot of people on the left who would have preferred Elizabeth Warren as the running mate to Joe Biden. I think Elizabeth Warren would have attracted a lot more of the Bernie bros who Biden needs to support, come out and support him in order to win the election. She was basically the second most radical person on the left, aside from Bernie Sanders, and a lot of Bernie supporters would have supported Elizabeth Warren. There are a lot of people on the left who, you know, in this time of anti-police rhetoric, are very concerned about the fact that Joe Biden selected a former cop in order to, you know, be his running mate. There are also a lot of concerns being expressed about about the fact that Kamala Harris seemed to, as prosecutor in California, keep black men in jail for very, very low-level offenses, such as marijuana possession, for you know extended periods of time. And so basically, she contributed to a lot of what the left in this country is currently standing against. So it's kind of interesting, and I actually think that Elizabeth Warren probably would have helped Joe Biden out more than Kamala Harris, but he couldn't pick her because she was white. That's just the reality is that he couldn't pick her and didn't pick her because she was white. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. But I think that there is a chance and I'm absolutely somebody who does not make any sort of predictions in elections. But I think that there is a decent chance that their the left's own obsession with identity politics might end up hurting them. Because, again, the most important factor in the selection of Kamala Harris was her race and her gender and not her past and her history in, in politics and her history and her career and her qualifications. And again, that is not just my opinion. That is the opinion that has been made very clear by every single news article, every single mainstream media outlet that has written an article or posted a headline over the last week and that has focused primarily on the fact that she is a woman of color and that she would be the first woman of color to be on a vice presidential ticket in the history of our country. They are the ones who made this the top issue, not me. All right, so switching gears a little bit before I end the show today, I do want to say a quick note about the case of Cannon Hinnant. Cannon Hinnant was a five-year-old little boy who was murdered last weekend while riding his bike. He was murdered in front of his two older sisters by a man who simply walked up to him and shot him and killed him. It's a particularly heinous case, and it's something that is, thank God, something that is out of the ordinary happening in the country. This is not something that actually happens every single day where innocent five-year-old children are murdered while riding their bikes. It is the kind of case that would surely garner media attention, except for the fact that it didn't. Over the last week, there has been a movement basically on social media and online that has decried the media silence over this situation. And the movement, they, you know, they're saying things like say his name, hashtag say his name. And they're outraged over the fact that every media outlet in this country ignored this case until Friday. Okay, so almost a full week later. The reason why people are outraged is because it's pretty clear why the media has ignored this case. The media ignored this case because the suspect who allegedly committed the shooting is black and the child who was killed is white. And this goes against the narrative that the media has a desire to put out there that America is this racist, terrible, no good, very bad place. If the races of these two individuals were reversed, there is no doubt in anyone's mind that this case would have wall-to-wall -wall media coverage. And that would be perfectly justified. If a white man went up to an innocent 
five-year-old black boy riding his bicycle and shot and killed him. That deserves coverage. That deserves coverage just as the little eight-year-old girl who was shot in the back of her mother's car in Atlanta deserves coverage. Just like the little one-year-old boy who was murdered sitting on his parents' lap in the middle of a park in New York deserves coverage. These are heinous, terrible crimes, and they deserve coverage. They deserve to have national outrage. But in this case, there was no national outrage, at least for the first week. Only among the people online was the outrage building. And finally, it built to a point where they had to, the news media had to finally address it. Now, there are a lot of people who look at this case and they say, well, why are you guys demanding the outrage? The implication is pretty clear. It is the idea that the people are angry because they're looking at all of the outrage that happened over the killing of George Floyd. And they're looking at all of the lack of outrage that has happened over the killing of Cannon Hinnant. And they're saying, what is wrong with our country? Why does one situation merit protests and civil unrest for weeks and weeks and weeks, and the other one doesn't. Now, their argument is that the case of Cannon Hinnant shouldn't merit wall-to-wall coverage, and it shouldn't merit national protests and outrage, because in this case, there is no injustice being done. And what they mean by that is that the suspect has been arrested. The suspect has been charged. In the case of George Floyd, in the case of Breonna Taylor, and all of these other situations that they're you know, protesting about, their argument is that there is no justice in that situation, because the person who was responsible for those deaths was not arrested in a timely manner or has yet to still have any consequences for their participation in those people's deaths. But in this case, because the suspect was arrested, because the justice system is working, there is no need for protests and outrage. So because of that, I just want to explain a little bit what the outrage about the lack of coverage over this case is about and what it means and why people are angry about it. The reason why people are angry about the lack of coverage is because it is very, very clear that the media in this country is not, that the mainstream media and the journalists are not fulfilling their role in presenting information and important events to the American people. The media in America today has one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to get Joe Biden and Kamala Harris elected to power. Their only purpose in existence at this point is to get Democrats elected to power. And in order to do that, they are going to blow up the stories that they think are going to be beneficial for Democratic candidates, and they are going to sweep under the rug all of the stories that they think are not going to be beneficial for those candidates and the narrative that they believe is going to get them elected. The idea that a black man is going to shoot and kill a little white boy, that just doesn't fit their narrative, and so they're not going to talk about it. That is what the outrage is about. When people are protesting about police brutality, the message behind it is that the police are powerful figures in our society. They have power over individual citizens and they are an arm of the government. And therefore, they should be held accountable for any abuse of power or anything that they do that is wrong. And I agree with that. I agree that anybody in this country who is in a position of power should be held accountable for how they utilize that power. The reality is, is that the media in America is in a tremendous position of power. They control our national dialogue. They control what issues Americans think are important or not important. They control that. They are in a position of power. And yet there is no accountability for their malpractice. There is no accountability for the fact that they pick and choose which stories to tell in order to push certain political agendas that they think are going to help their selected political parties. That is wrong. And because of the First Amendment, the government is not able to do anything to hold the media accountable. And that's how it should be. Okay, we have a First Amendment and it is not the government's job to regulate media. But they do have to be held accountable. 
They are in positions of power and they do have to be held accountable. And the only people who are able to actually hold them accountable are the citizens, are the viewers, are the listeners, are the readers. We are the ones who are in a position of power to hold media figures accountable for their actions. So I think that it is great that there was a social media campaign in order to bring this to the forefront of society. I think that it is great that there are so many people in America who have a voice now, thanks to technology, thanks to social media, who are able to stand up and say, you know what, your lack of coverage of this issue, because it doesn't push your racial narrative, is wrong. It is wrong and it should not be allowed to continue. It is up to us to hold the media accountable. And I, I just personally think that it is a great thing that we are doing so. But I saw a lot of the criticism of the movement and of, you know, the drive to bring this story to the forefront. And I saw the argument that, you know, oh, this isn't the same because there's no injustice here. And I just wanted to address why I think that that perspective is wrong, why the story has gained so much traction, and particularly why people are so outraged over the fact that the media have been silent about this particular story. It is wrong and it is wonderful that the American people are actually holding our media figures accountable. It is something that we need to continue to do and we need to do on a much greater level. There is actually another example of a story that was kind of pushed under the rug that ties in with what I'm talking about here. If you think about the last couple of months in the United States, the last four or five months specifically, and you had to name the top two news stories that occurred in our country over the summer, let's say, what two news stories would you say? Most likely, you would say that the top two stories in the country were the coronavirus pandemic and the killing of George Floyd by a Minnesota police officer that resulted in national protests and unrest for several weeks. Now, if you were told that there was a video, that there was new video evidence that specifically pertained to one of those two top news stories of the year 2020 that came out, it would seem that the mainstream media would be pretty quick to cover that story. Any new development in one of the two top stories of the year seems to be something that would garner a lot of attention. And yet we had new video released about the altercation between the Minneapolis Police Department and George Floyd. And it took, in the, just like in this other case, it took about three or four days before any mainstream media news outlet decided to pick up that story. There was newly released footage from the body cams of those Minnesota police officers that showed the moments leading up to the altercation that ended the life of George Floyd. And the, this video adds more context to the situation. I'm not going to say that it exonerates the officer. Or it doesn't exonerate the officer. I'm not going to say that in any way it justifies what happened or the fact that that altercation ended the life of a human being. I'm not going to say any of that. But I will say that that video did add additional context. In that video, we see George Floyd telling those officers numerous times before he was put on the ground that he couldn't breathe. So he's just walking around saying, I can't breathe. I don't feel right. And they were trying to just calm him down. They were trying to put him in the police car. And he was saying he couldn't be put in the car because he was claustrophobic, even though he had just come out of a car. And they offered to roll the windows down for him. They And that was the reason they took him out of the car was because he was complaining about being claustrophobic. There were apparently two other people who were in the car that George Floyd was in who were during this time calling to George Floyd and telling him, stop fighting them, stop resisting, just do what they say. There's a lot of things in this video that, again, add a little bit of context to the situation. And the news media did not cover this video 
for days. I, I really believe it was about three or four days before any of the news media covered it. And even then, it was very quickly brushed under the rug. And for all of the talk in this country about how Fox News is so biased and Fox News is such a right-wing right wing network, they didn't cover it either. And I think that Americans need to start asking ourselves, why is that? Why is it that when new video information comes out about one of the top two stories in the country this year, why would it take the mainstream news organizations in 2020, where we have 24-hour news cycles and everything is covered, why would it take them three to four days to air any coverage of this video and then to downplay it. Now, I'm not saying that they that this video, you know, determines anything and I'm not saying that this video leads to one way or another, but isn't it important for the American people who are making decisions about our funding for police officers and about our about police brutality and about protests and about all of these different things, isn't it wouldn't it be important for us to have all of the information and what does it say? What does it say about a news media in this country that is perfectly willing to sweep certain stories under the rug and they are always the same way. They are always the stories that do not promote the narrative that the media is trying to put out there. The reason why there was so much outrage over the killing of Canon Hinnant and over the fact that the media were silent about it is because the American people understand that the media are not doing their job. When people are protesting against police brutality, one of the talking points that they have is that police officers are in a position of power over regular American citizens. They are an arm of the government and they have power over people. And therefore, anybody who is in a position of power should be held accountable for their actions. And that is something that I agree with. I think that anybody and everybody who is in a position of power in this country over people should be held accountable for what they do and for that power. We need to recognize, though, that the mainstream media in this country has a tremendous amount of power. They control our national dialogue. They control our national conversation. And there are millions of Americans whose sole source for how their worldview is formed is based on what they see on these media outlets. They have a tremendous amount of power and they have zero accountability. The government, because of the First Amendment, cannot do anything to regulate the media. And that's how it should be. Okay, I believe in the First Amendment. I don't think the government are the ones who need to regulate the media. But somebody needs to, to hold them accountable. And the only people who are able to do that are the American people. The only people who are able to do that are the readers and the listeners and the viewers. We are the ones who have to hold the media accountable. We are the ones who have to demand that they give us all of the information. And thanks to social media and thanks to technology and all of these alternate media sources, we are able as Americans, as citizens, to see information even that the media does, the mainstream media doesn't want us to see. We are able to hear stories and discover stories that they would rather we never knew about. And I think that it is fantastic. I think that it is a good thing and a move in the right direction that we as citizens have the ability to use social media, to use whatever platforms we have in at our disposal to put pressure on these large media outlets to air the stories that they would rather not hear. Okay, because at the end of the day, it is these major outlets that get to the most amount of people. And when people who are on social media and people who are, you know, not so much in the spotlight use our influence, use whatever voices that we have in order to pressure these media companies to cover the stories that they would otherwise like to, to completely ignore, I think that that is a good thing. And that is something that should be celebrated. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and give it a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps each and every week. 
Also, please share this episode with a family member or friend so we can help spread the word. You can follow me on Twitter at JJNAmerican. You can also message the show by sending an email to JJ at I'mJustAnAmerican.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at I'mJustAnAmerican. Thank you for taking a moment out of your day to talk about identity politics and the importance of holding our news media accountable. I'll be back next time for a deep dive into issues plaguing American life from the perspective of Just an American. Music for this podcast was written and performed by Michael Beatty. You can find him on Twitter at Michael Beatty 3.